Well, on the back of your program for tonight is your scripture because you can't hold bread, bread pudding and a Bible at the same time. And so I wanted to speak to you for a few minutes tonight from Romans chapter 12. And to kind of get us started, I want to talk to you about John Calvin. Um, he's, he's a hero of our faith. He was born uh, July 10th, 1509, and died in May of 1564. And in 53 short years, I mean, changed the world, essentially. He's one of our heroes of the faith. He is arguably the most important theologian of the Reformation. But he was, first and foremost, a churchman. He was about the church. He loved the church. He loved to preach to the church. But what you might not know is that wasn't his original view. That wasn't his original calling. One night he was staying in Geneva because of a detour. The detour was happening because there was a war going on on the road he needed to take. So he said, I don't think I'll take that road. He went to Geneva to stay the night. And he met up with a local church leader named William Farrell. And they got to know each other a little bit. Farrell knew of John Calvin. And Farrell said, it is God's will that you remain in Geneva and be a pastor. And Calvin said, I'm not a pastor, I'm a scholar. So William Farrell said, may God curse all of your studies if you don't stay in Geneva and be a pastor. Here's what Calvin wrote. I felt as if God from heaven had laid his mighty hand upon me to stop me in my course. I was so terror-stricken that I did not continue my journey. And except for a brief period of three years in which he was away from Geneva, he was there the rest of his life. While he was there, he preached over 2,000 sermons in his church, and of course he came to love the local church. He had a very high view of the church. He had an amazing theologian's mind, but he was also a genius at boiling facts down to their simplest truth. And he said this about the church. This is what a church is. Quote, wherever we find the word of God surely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to the institution of Christ, there, it is not to be doubted, is a church of God. Now, to say that in a Roman Catholic atmosphere was shocking, but he nailed it. He got it exactly right. He believed that the church was the greatest display of the glory of God on earth, that we were the display of, of God's majesty, of his holiness, of his, of his might, and that it's in the context of the church that God speaks to his people, that he demands our attention, demands our obedience. It's always in the context of the church. He said this, The whole world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power. But the church is the orchestra, as it were, the most conspicuous part of it. And the nearer the approaches are that God makes to us, the more intimate and condescending the communication of his benefits, the more attentively we're called to consider them. And so, in other words, he's saying that God is displaying himself in the world, and there's theme music to go along with that, and it's the church that's playing that music. He considered himself a servant of Christ for the sake of the church all the way to the end. In fact, Calvin worked himself nearly to death. When he couldn't anymore walk the 200 yards from his house to the church, he started being carried there in a chair so that he could preach. And when his doctor wouldn't let him out into the cold winter air, he crowded everyone he could into his bedroom to give lectures and repeat the same sermons over again until he got everybody through in his bedroom. Even on his deathbed, his friends pleaded with Calvin to refrain from all of his work and to stop. And he said this, quote, what, what would you have the Lord find me when he comes? Would you have him find me idle? 
He wanted to work all the way to the end. And so John Calvin stands as this monumental example of love for the church and the dedication to the Lord as demonstrated by serving in the church. But I don't want us to think that that sort of attitude, that sort of dedication is just for uh, the heroes of the faith. The Apostle Paul commended the little baby church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3. He said, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That the true church of Jesus Christ is a laboring church. It's a working church. We use our muscle. We use our abilities. And to illustrate this point, the Apostle Paul coined a phrase which is is so embedded into our thinking now that we don't even remember that it's a metaphor. He coined the phrase, the body of Christ. Paul referred to the church as the body of Christ with the Roman church, the Corinthian church, the Ephesian church, the Colossian church. This was just his, his normal metaphor to teach us what the church is to be. And we see this metaphor used in our text for tonight, Romans 12, 3 through 8. Now, you have to understand that one of the reasons Paul was writing the Roman church was to explain the relationship between the Gentile believers on one hand and the Jewish believers on the other, and he was calling them to unity together in Christ. And so he spends 11 chapters on doctrine, and then he transitions to Romans chapter 12 to duty, and he urges them to be unified together. And so after he tells them to present their lives, their bodies, all that they are as a living sacrifice, He calls them to humble unity together. And we see this in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. And this is when he says to us, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And so how was this unity to be expressed? Well, it was to be expressed in service and in labor for the sake of the gospel. If I could put it this way, for the Apostle Paul, unity was not a concept. Unity was something you did. It was a work that you did together. It wasn't us sitting in a room together and saying, hey, let's just, let's say we're unified. Okay, we're unified. It was doing things together. It was laboring for the gospel together. And so he demonstrates the service and labor for the sake of the gospel in verse 4. And he gives this metaphor. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. My gifts are going, aren't they? I knew that was going to happen. We, we predicted this. It's not preaching. That didn't go down, did it? No, preaching's over there. If that one goes down, we're in trouble. So he gives this illustration that he doesn't really explain it. It's almost like it's just, it's just parachuted into here. What does he mean, one body in Christ? What is he talking about? Well, a book that he'd written earlier than Romans explains this, and they probably would have been familiar with this. And so he takes this illustration a lot further. This is his real explanation of one body in Christ. It's found in 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 14. And this is his, his thesis. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 
If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. What an amazingly brilliant, easy-to-understand metaphor. It's something we all get, we all can understand. And so in Romans 12, he outlines the differing roles, the different body parts, as it were, in the body of Christ, the gifting by the Spirit that God has given to the members of the church. And so we see this list here, beginning in verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So these gifts are demonstrated and distributed rather by the Holy Spirit for the building up of the body of Christ, for the service to him in the context of the local church. That is the venue. Now, we have to say this. Yes, obviously, the church of Jesus Christ exists to be a light in the world to the lost, to be salt in, in, in a dull world. The gospel is always a major focus for us, but I think it's important for us to remember that the mature local church understands that our first priority is to one another because we're only effective in the world as we are effective to one another. Show me a church that doesn't love each other, and I'll show you a church that isn't effective in the world anyway. And so we are our first priority. It's like when you're on an airplane and they're, they're doing their little spiel before the, the, the plane takes off. What do they always say? If you have a small child and you lose cabin pressure, put your own mask on first and then put the mask on your child. So we look out for ourselves first. That's not selfish. That's just biblical. And so Paul lists these gifts given by the Holy Spirit. They're, they're special enablings. They're unique aptitudes in various combinations to various people. Now, the big question in the church often is, well, how do you know which ones you have? And, and, and we do big spiritual gifts inventories and have entire uh, seminars and days devoted to this, mostly so that you can just get a plaque to hang on your wall that says, here are my spiritual gifts. It doesn't really do anything for the church. The easiest way to know what your spiritual gifts are are to try all of them, and the ones you're good at and like, those are yours. It's very simple. And so he lists seven gifts. The first one he lists we would call preaching. It's what the text calls prophecy. Now, this isn't the apostolic age gift of foretelling the future or receiving revelation from the Lord. By the time Paul writes to the Romans, really the miraculous gifts of tongues, healings, and prophecy, they, they were on their way out. We were just about done with them. Um, they were given to bear witness to the validity of the gospel message, Hebrews 2 Verse 4 says, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And by the time Hebrews is written, that's essentially past tense. That's done. Why do we not need that anymore? Because we have a completed Bible. And so this is the gift of prophecy here, not in the sense of foretelling the word of God, but the sense of forthtelling, proclaiming the word of God. It is as one preacher called it, the fire in the belly of a man who must proclaim God's word. Men called by God to spend their lives in the declaration of the gospel, the declaration of the scriptures. It is the gifting to study the scriptures, to apply the scriptures to the lives of church members. It's a yearning, it's an irresistible mission to glorify God. 
by opening the Bible by means of declaration and proclamation and explanation and illumination and illustration and application. Those are what we do when we preach. And the preaching of the word is the means by which the Lord brings the lost elect into the kingdom as the saved elect. That is his means. Romans 10 verse 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now listen, I've read a lot of books on evangelism methods. A lot of you have as well. And we've tried a lot of them. But for 2,000 years, bar none, the most effective evangelism method that God has always used is simply inviting the lost to church to hear the gospel preached. That has been his method, is the proclamation of the gospel from faithful pulpits. And how is the gift of preaching to be used? The text says, in proportion to our faith. Don't misinterpret that. It doesn't mean that if you have a little bit of faith, you're a lousy preacher, and if you have a lot of faith, you're a great preacher. What it literally means is analogous to the faith, compared to the faith. The faith is the body of doctrine that we receive from the scriptures. In other words, the preacher is to preach only that which is found in scripture and only that which is in accord with sound doctrine. That's what preaching is. What does that mean? It means that hermeneutics, Bible study methods, exegetical process, those things matter so that we might remain accurate before the Lord. All the other gifts are encouraged. All the other gifts are given a place to be expressed. All the other gifts are built up and grown in the context of preaching. That's why parachurch organizations, which have done so many good things, a lot of them get off track. Why is that? Because they've lost touch with preaching. They're doing some of the other gifts, but there's no core basis in preaching. That's why God will always use the local church the most. Well, Paul gives a second gift, and that is the gift of service. The gift of service. And this is the Greek word diakonia, and we get our word deacon from this Greek word. It's not used here in a technical fashion to speak of the office of deacon. It's just a general use for somebody who acts like a deacon, who's a servant at heart, who loves the church. And so to understand the spirit of that gift, let's think about what a deacon is. Now, we wouldn't go so far to say that the seven men that were nominated uh, by the church and approved by the apostles in Acts chapter 6, we wouldn't say that those were deacons in the technical sense, but they really do provide our best example in Scripture of the spirit of diakonia with these men. The apostles were dealing with, with massive crowds from the growth of the church, and this included trying to care for poor widows. And, and so the apostles gathered the church, and they said that our role is prayer and the word. And they told them to nominate seven godly men. And so they nominated them, and the, the apostles approved them. These were men, as, as Acts 6 says, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So what was their duty? Was their duty to receive all kinds of glory and laud and to make lots of big decisions? Their duty was to wait tables. Their duty was to serve food to the widows. This is the spirit of the servant. The servant in the church is to be a godly person who aspires to Christ's likeness and is pursuing the faith, but then is a laborer in whatever capacity is needed, whatever needs to be done. How do you know if you're a servant? Well, let me make a very simple comparison. When somebody gifted as a leader sees a need in the church, he instinctively wants to appoint someone to meet that need. 
when somebody is a servant, he sees a need in the church, he instinctively wants to be the one appointed to meet that need, wants to do anything, takes great joy in that. And so the church runs very much on the back of those with the gift of service. But the church is built on the Word of God, and so we return again to the Word of God, and we see teachers, and that is the third gift, is teaching. Uh, Literally, it means one who instructs, one who gives information. Uh, This is a person who knows God's Word, loves God's Word, probably isn't burdened or even necessarily gifted as a preacher. Some of my favorite seminary professors, I wouldn't let them in my own pulpit because I love them dearly, and they are smart, brilliant men, but they couldn't hold an audience for three minutes if their lives depended on it, because they are teachers, and they, they're there to impart information, not to entertain us, not to, not to thrill our hearts. They're there to fill our minds. Now, this is the teacher. This is a, a person who maybe has a, a bent toward and a desire to instruct others in the Word of God. Now, I will say this. A preacher, by default, better be a teacher. Otherwise, he's just spewing out nothing but his own ideas. But most teachers are not preachers. Teachers in the Church of Jesus Christ include Sunday school teachers. Now, many of you volunteer for Children's Church because we have 4,289 children, and and not everybody can be gifted in teaching, but we have to have you there anyway. Uh, Some of you teach with passion. Others of you bring duct tape and just tape the kids to the wall uh, to get through it. But some of you don't just volunteer. Some of you are, are, are passionate and you're skilled about preparing your lessons. Uh, a lot of our children's ministry leaders have completed BTI, and so they're, they're qualified to make sure the curriculum we use is on track um, in any given lesson. We have a core group of Sunday school teachers who teach your children every single week, and they're all gifted teachers. Uh, my wife is one of them, and I know the others are, are, are like her in that she gets excited about her lesson. She prays for the children, and she checks the theology of the lesson because just because it's got a little copyright symbol doesn't mean it's accurate theology. Some of you have a, a passion for reading Sometimes that's indicative of the gift of teaching. Our own elder, Bart Bissell, has read every book published since 1912. That is a fact. He just reads all the time. Small group leaders. Some of you facilitate the group. Others of you are are gifted teachers, and you want to bring your own material, your own lesson, and, and we encourage that and love that. And as I mentioned before, the Lord also gives men who are gifted to teach the preachers. Uh, our seminary professors, God's gift to the church. Um, very often they're, they're, they're scholarly. Some of them aren't even very sociable. I ran into one of my favorite professors in a drugstore, and I had the flu, and I felt horrible. And uh, he, he, this is a man with just a theological mind. And he said, well, uh, wh- wh- what are you doing here? And I said, well, I have the flu. And he goes, well, good luck with that, and walks away. <laughs> I was like, do you want to pray for me? There wasn't a pastoral bone in his body. But you ask him to explain the kingdom of God, and he'll go on for hours. Talk about the flu. He's not interested. But these are teachers, and the church needs them, and the more, the better. God has given the church teachers. But sometimes people need to be taught one-on-one. Sometimes they need to be encouraged one-on-one. And so there's a fourth gift God has given, the gift of exhortation. The Greek word paraklesis, and generally speaking, it just means to encourage More specifically, it means to call someone alongside you. 
One classic lexicon defines this as, quote, the act of emboldening another in belief or a course of action. That's terrific. It is encouraging. It means to console. It can mean to correct someone. Another respected lexicon points out that, that paraclesis is usually verbal, but it can be nonverbal as well. It can be nonverbal encouragement. I put it this way. When I walk in the door and I smell Sylvia's secret recipe baked chicken in the oven, that's paraclesis. I'm encouraged. I'm exhorted. I should have come home earlier. I should have been there ready to eat. And listen, if there is ever one spiritual gift that all of you should hope for and ask for and attain to, it's that one. But some of you are just natural encouragers, natural counselors. Some see a saint in distress and just deeply desire to come alongside. And this is so important because I think it's a, it's a key fault in the church that we have the view that it's the job of the professionals to do all the counseling. It's the job of the pastors. It's the job of the staff to do that. It's not. Romans 15, the Apostle Paul told the Roman church, I am confident that you are able to counsel one another. It is your job to come alongside each other. I think all believers to a certain degree can exercise this gift, but some of you are passionate about it. And if you're passionate about it, you should consider going through Bible Training Institute so that your knowledge of theology matches your love for people. Then you should consider maybe reading a book every couple of months on biblical counseling, grow your own knowledge, Uh, Consider finding a young believer and investing time in that person. Listen, paraclesis literally means to come alongside someone. And you just put your arm around someone and you say, congratulations, you and I are going to spend time together. Don't ask, just tell them. That's what's going to happen. So in the church, we have the gift of exhortation, which is so, so useful, so needful. But like any operation, the, the church needs funds. It took funds for the ministry of Jesus, and it takes funds to operate a local church. And so we have a fifth gift, the one who contributes, often called the gift of giving. As we say in our Grace Connect class to our new members, you get what you pay for in a local church. You get what you pay for. Every believer is called to give financially to the Lord's work. It's not really an optional part of being a Christian But there are some who are uniquely passionate about the giving of their resources, giving of their money uh, to the work of the kingdom. Often, though not always, that person with the gift of giving also seems to have the gift of getting, that somehow they're just walking into it. I, I personally know a man who spent 60 years in the car business, and he owned 10 dealerships. And I got to interview him for an article I was writing a number of years ago, and and I asked him, how did you get 10 dealerships? And he said, I graduated from high school and started selling cars. And for some reason, every time I showed somebody a car, they bought it. (laughs) He has no idea. And he just made millions of dollars and has given away tons of it um, to the work of the kingdom. That's often the case. But sometimes it's just people who are willing and excited to make deep personal sacrifices in order to give more than others at the same income level. Uh, in their same area of life. Uh, I read of one man who owned a construction company, and he and his wife made a choice to live on 10% of his salary and to give 90% of it away. That was just their choice. A person with a gift of giving is a person who understands that ministry takes money, and they don't shy away from that, and that it's an eternal investment. An eternal investment. And how is this gifted person supposed to give? Paul says, in generosity. Now, this is important. This is not just speaking about large amounts of money because not everybody with the gift of giving has large amounts of money. 
This word has deeper nuances. It means to give with sincerity. It's a word that literally means singleness. In other words, you're single-minded, you're focused. There's no doubt, there's no stinginess, there's no uh, uh, any sort of stipulations. I'll give this amount of money to the building fund if my son can become a deacon or if that. There's no ifs. It's just, I'm just going to give and the Lord will do what he wants with this funding. The church rises and falls, though not on the money given, it rises on and falls on the next gift. The sixth one is the gift of leadership. Without leadership, the gift, the, the church will fail. Paul calls this one the one who leads. Prohistomy means to literally to stand in front of. More, more practically speaking, it's someone who manages, someone who leads. This is the person who can manage projects, lead people. And if you're a really skilled leader, you can manage projects while loving the people that, are, that you're utilizing at the same time and not just using them. Uh, both men and women in the church are given the gift of leadership. Uh, women are not to exercise spiritual leadership over men, but that certainly doesn't mean that women aren't leaders. Uh, the gift of leadership combines very well with those with the gift of service. And some people have both gifts. And that's really useful because you can lead well or you can follow well. And that's, a, that's an excellent combination. If you have the gift of leadership and you're not using it and you're wondering how am I going to use it, let me give you a hint. Become the best servant because the best servants ultimately become leaders. And how is the leader to lead? The elder, the deacon, the staff member, anybody who's organizing, anybody who's in charge of anything, how are you supposed to lead Paul simply says, with zeal. Now, kind of a wooden translation of that word, it means literally to do something as fast as you can, that you're, you're eager for it. But the practical meaning is to do something with, with intense effort, with motivation, with, not with a sense of, of ho-hum. It is to do your very, very best. I'll never forget in the Grace Advance Academy that I was in in uh, 2012, that uh, Dr. MacArthur came and he spoke to us for a couple of days. And somebody asked the question about, you know, how do you appoint elders? And he talked about that over the years, every time he had ever coaxed somebody and talked them into being an elder, that they'd failed. That it had to be somebody with a fire in their belly to lead, with, with a passion for it, that when, when you try to talk somebody into it who really isn't gifted, that ultimately they're not going to do well. Uh, let me put it in terms that we can all relate to. Your leadership in the church, and this goes for serving as well, but your leadership in the church ought to be with the same excellence that you apply yourself in every other area of life. And I might say this, maybe more. Maybe more. And if the leader is a person that someone sees, that everybody sees, I think the Apostle Paul, writing this inspired text, he did something really beautiful. The leader is somebody that everyone sees, but he saved the last gift for last. The, he saved the most special person, the one that nobody sees. And that is our final gift, the gift of mercy. The gift of mercy. I want you to notice how Paul pragmatically defines the gift of mercy. One who does acts of mercy. Uh, somebody with the gift of mercy is not just somebody who gets a, a, a tear in their eye whenever they see something but doesn't ever do anything about it. That's called a liberal. That's not somebody with the gift of mercy. <laughs> somebody with the gift of mercy sees a need, loves the person, meets the need. This is a believer who quietly does little things, 
quietly. He sometimes does big things with no motive except to be a blessing. You know, when I know I've come across somebody with the true gift of mercy, it's when I thank them for something and they look so uncomfortable that they just want to dig a hole in the ground and crawl in it. They don't want to be thanked. They just want to be, be faithful. It does carry the idea, though, of having sympathy and pity on another. I tend to think we have a lot of members in our church with a strong gift of mercy because every time we've ever had a need, every time there's been a genuine need in the church, you have risen up like champions to meet that need. It's amazing to see when we've had people with health health difficulties, when our, our, our former pastor, James Street, when his health difficulties, you, you helped pay for very expensive treatment for him, and he wasn't even here anymore. There's a lot of merciful people in our church, and I'm thankful for that. You know the person with the gift of mercy because they don't martyr themselves about it. They don't complain. They don't draw a lot of attention to themselves. Instead, they are to exhibit mercy, Paul says, with cheerfulness. It literally means to be happy about it, to be, uh, have an attitude that's the opposite of begrudging. That I love to serve. I love to do the little things. Someone with the gift of mercy almost likes the challenge of meeting needs without anyone knowing that they did it. I think that's a great idea for the gift of mercy. Uh, let me see if I can illustrate this. Sometimes our, our student ministries has a, a bake sale to raise money for camp. You can always tell the members with the gift of mercy combined with giving because they walk away with one cookie with a bite taken out of it and they paid $100 for it. They're like, oh, they just need to go to camp. And then you can tell, by the way, the members without the gift of mercy because they walk up with 50 cents and ask if anything is half off. Okay, we all have different gifts. That's okay. (laughs) When you put all this together, when you see the Apostle Paul's uh, simple explanation, his his explanation that a child can understand how we're one body in Christ and how we serve one another with the gift of preaching and service and teaching and exhortation and giving and leadership and mercy, it's like the seven colors of a rainbow. It's like paint on a palette. It's like the notes of a scale. It takes all of them to put it together into one beautiful picture, one beautiful sonata. So let me just give you a couple of things to think about, just some bullet points by way of application. Uh, First of all, service keeps you from being a church consumer rather than being part of the body. If you want to be a church consumer and be an outside judge that stands back with with your arms crossed judging everything that's happening in our church, then don't do anything. And ultimately, you won't reap the benefits of being involved with the body. There is nothing like serving alongside. Uh, How many of you here have served in some capacity or another with our Steadfast Bible Conference? Raise your hand. You guys have blood and scars, and some of you literally blood. You will always have those memories together, and it bonds you together. Second thing to think about, service keeps you kingdom-focused. It keeps you kingdom-focused. I always dread the idea of pastoring the church filled with spectators. That's not a church. That's, a, that's an event. We want to be a church. We want to stay kingdom-focused. I mean, really, uh, what else is there to do? One of, one of the most common questions I get from young men and young women is, what is God, how do I know God's will for my life? And that's, I just tell them, that's simple. I know God's will for your life. I can tell you right now. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but here's what I know, is that God wants you, young man, to get a good job, Get married, have kids, and be faithful in the church, and die and go to your reward. There you go. Just do that. Service keeps you kingdom-focused. Another thing to think about, 
This is a little bit more serious. Service in the church is not what mature Christians do. It's what Christians do. Show me somebody who has remained on the periphery and who is capable of doing things and who is capable, even everybody's capable of prayer, but who's capable but remains on the periphery. And I'll show you somebody that five years from now we might be saying, I'm not even sure you're saved because they never loved the church. Here's a fourth thing to think about. You can use formal or informal means to use your gifts. Don't wait for an official invitation. Just use your gift. Spontaneously meet a need. And then this is not so much something for you to do, but just something I've observed. Service in the church demonstrates that the church has a trajectory, that we have a a, a direction. I mean, the oldest joke about the church is that we've always done it that way. That's okay if it's good things like preaching and music worship and so forth, but usually the phrase we've always done it that way refers to the fact that the church has lost its way. It's just marking time. It's just taking up a square block. It's not really doing anything. The service says we're doing something. We're moving forward. We're trying to impact the kingdom. And so my hope for all of you, and and I've prayed for you before tonight, my hope is that if you know in your heart you need to devote yourself more fully to the service of the Lord, that you'll reevaluate your time, your resources, how you allocate the things the Lord has given you, and make a mission for yourself. Write a mission statement for January 2018. This is my mission as a servant of the Lord in the church. And then I also am hoping and praying that If you are already serving substantially, which I think is the majority of our church, that you'll be encouraged to fight the good fight, continue on, be faithful, and build what we might call a solid resume to present to the Lord on the day that you meet him. Don't be the person that started something for six months, did something else for a month, did this and did that. Be the person that builds a ministry around yourself and presents that as a gift to the Lord. Well, we don't have John Calvin here to inspire us, to encourage us, but we do have somebody better. In Revelation chapter 2, the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3 are pictured metaphorically as seven golden lampstands. These are lampstands which shine the light of the gospel and the spirit of God into the world. And then the churches are also described as seven stars, giving light in the darkness. So there are the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars. And in his introduction to his letter to the church at Ephesus, Jesus describes himself, quote, as him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, that he walks among us. He is our evaluator. He is our motivator. He is our commander-in-chief. He is the head of the church. He is the one who's given you the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's given you the gifts necessary to complete his mission, to build his kingdom And so we know that Jesus not only evaluates us individually, but from Revelation 2 and 3, we also know that he evaluates us corporately as a body. And so my hope is that we work together such that when there's a day that our name is called, will Grace Bible Church of Bakersfield please step forward for our reward that we can receive the joy of a job well done as the body of Christ, as his hands, as his feet, as his mouth all for Christ and all for his glory. So make your goals for this year and make them stick. And let's do this all for Christ. This isn't just for each other. This is ultimately for him. And so whatever your gift is, you do it with all of your might. And if a lot of people see you, praise the Lord. If nobody sees you, praise the Lord. And it'll all come out 
in the reward, in the kingdom. Work together as the body of Christ. That's my hope. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time in your word, and we look forward now to hearing what you have already done. This is, in fact, our celebration banquet. We, we celebrate you. We, we're here in honor of you. We, we've dressed up. Um, Lord, we've, we've gotten together in our fanciest clothes, really, to celebrate you and your grace and your kindness. And so, Lord, now for a few moments from another one of our elders, we're going to hear just the, the, the amazing things that you've done in our midst. We are so flawed. We are so weak. We are so incapable. And yet, we are the ones that you use in mighty ways, ways that we never could have imagined. And so we thank you. We give you praise. And we would ask you, Lord, that every person here would evaluate the gifting that you've given and that they would work diligently that they would labor in love for the sake of Christ until we all appear together and our name collectively is called to receive our reward from our smiling Savior. And we thank you in his name. Amen.